Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. So today we're going to be doing, we're going to be discussing something that you guys are probably saying again, Stephen, that's all you talk about. But... Uh, for me, since I've, since I've been in the ministry now, let's say full-time basis, I, I don't like that term because we all are full-time ministry, amen? All of us are called to, to the gospel and to share the gospel wherever we are. But I'm going to share a message that's been growing strong in my heart since I've been working with the church and in the church more frequently. And that's a message that, that's revealed in our heart statement on the wall there. If those, those of you want to know who is Alpha and Omega, that's the best way we can sum up Alpha and Omega because that's who every believer should be. We're a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. So, as I continue to study scriptures, I'm amazed that I'm amazed how community-based it is. Amen? You see, if we only see the Bible as an indiv- individualistic self-help book, I think we do it a great disservice. You know, the Bible's not just for, for me, myself, and I, and us four and no more. The Bible is for every single person on this earth that was, that is, and that will to be, right? So today I'm going to journey through Scripture, and there's quite a lot of readings, uh, so you're going to have to bear with me. And we're going to journey through Scripture together, and what I'm going to be sharing with you today is that, just to highlight something you probably know already, but maybe a refresher, is that all of us are created in and for community. We're not created for to exist isolated and alone. We're not islands. We're created in and for community. So let's begin. And where do, and where do all things begin? In Genesis, right? In Him, right? So let's, let's discuss, like Robin said, let's discuss in Him. Who is the community of God? Does God belong in a community? Church. The church? But in himself, does, does God himself belong in a community? How? Oh. Thank you, yes, he does. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, God himself coexists together in a community. And he always has from the beginning of time and even before the beginning of time. He's always been as a community for eternity, a loving, serving, and glorifying one another, like a love dance, they glorified one another. So let's read John's account of, of, of how God is a community within himself. We're going to read from John 1, verse 1 to 3 from the Amplified. In the beginning, that's where all things begin. But John says, before all time in the Amplified, and that's why I love it, because for us the beginning is when we were born. But you know the beginning is not even before the world was created. It was the, God was always existing. Nothing ever existed before him. So from all, before all time was the Word, Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God himself. He was continually existing in the beginning, co-eternally with God. All things were made and came into existence through him, and without him not even one thing that was made has come into being. Isn't that powerful that Jesus existed as the Son with the Father before all creation? <coughs> Amen? I'm going to read you the Passion Translation's footnotes because I just love the way they put it. They say, Jesus Christ is the eternal Word, 
the creative word and the word made visible. He is the divine self-expression of all that God is, contains, and reveals in incarnated flesh. Just as we express ourselves in words, like I'm doing today, God has perfectly expressed himself in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? You know, words can fail us to describe who our almighty God is because our minds can't even comprehend him. But Christ is the manifestation of that expression. And that for me is such a beautiful saying. It continues, it says, The living expression, Christ, had full participation in every attribute of deity held by God the Father. The living expression existed eternally as a separate individual, but essentially the same as one with the Father. Now, good luck trying to explain to your children how God is three and one. Many of us, many theologians struggle, okay? So I'm going to try, okay? I'm going to try with my favorite medium, which is pictures. Jay, this is what, for me, okay, it might not be accurate, but for me, this is a, 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 as best as we can come up with a representation of how God is three and one at the same time. See, the outer sides of the triangle, we've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Right? They are not one and the same. They are distinct and separate beings. Do you believe that? Amen. But together, they come together. They are all God. Okay, like I said, good luck trying to tell that to your children. <laughs> That's just amazing how powerful and how we cannot fathom God. But for me, it's amazing how these three that are one had a love dance. And in that love dance, they created the world. Okay, we know they all existed before the beginning of time. Even the Spirit. We just read that Jesus the Son was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word, the Word was before beginning of time. But the Holy Spirit was there too. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and the darkness covered the deep waters. And who was hovering over the surface of the waters? The Spirit. So all three existed before the beginning of time. Can you see that they are a community within themselves. Not isolated, not individualistic, but together and creation being involved in creation together. You see, God, however you want to fathom it in your mind, God spoke the word for creation, let there be light. Can you imagine Jesus was that word that brought light to come forward? And the Holy Spirit was there over the waters. All were involved in the creation. Amen? Let me read to you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows who that is. I only recently discovered who he is, and he's a fire and brimstone kind of guy, so I was shocked to hear such wonderful words from uh, someone, if you can stereotype him as that. But he paints a beautiful picture of what heaven is like with the Trinity, and I'm going to read it for you. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united as one, in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual eternal love. There dwells God the Father, who is the Father of mercies, and so the Father of love, who so loved the world as to give His only begotten Son to die for it. There dwells Christ, the Lamb of God, the Prince of peace and of love, who so loved the world that He shed His blood and poured out His soul unto death for men. There dwells the great Mediator, the Holy Spirit, through whom all divine love is expressed towards men, and whom they are communicated and through whom is imparted to the hearts of all God's people. There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three in one 
is set open without any obstacles to hinder access to it, as if it flows forever. There is, there is, sorry, there this glorious God is manifested, shines forth in full glory in beams of love. That's from Jonathan Edwards in his description, Heaven is a world of love. Isn't that beautiful? He, des he describes the Father, he describes the Son and the Holy Spirit and how they all work together and how they all still work together in creation. So, let's fast forward a little bit and jump time to the New Testament. Does anybody know of a specific occasion in the New Testament where each of the triune Godhead was involved together in a distinctive moment that they were working together at a specific time? that we can read in Scripture, that you can read one or two verses that you can see all three of the Godhead represented and working together. I'll give you a clue. It's in the New Testament. Well, there might be more. I've got, got one. Anybody? Jesus' baptism. Matthew 3, verse 16 to 17. Let's read it. I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. And you can read all three of the Godhead represented in this one powerful moment. And as Jesus rose up out of the water, the heavenly realm opened up over him, and he saw the Holy Spirit descend out of the heavens and rest upon him in the form of a dove. Then suddenly the voice of the Father shouted from the sky, saying, This is the Son I love, and my greatest delight is in him. We see Jesus being submissive and being baptized by man, John the Baptist, coming out of the water and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and we see the Father's voice of acceptance and love coming down. Isn't that, in one verse, we can prove the trin Trinitarian of God. That if anybody doubts, you point them to this one verse, that Jesus was God, but he was distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, that for me is just the beginning. I've done a very quick, concise study of the Trinitarian theology. Okay? That was just to form a foundation to prove that God wants us to be in community because He Himself is in community. Amen? But guess what? It doesn't end there. Praise the Lord. He invites us. He invites mankind. He invites humanity into his, this very community that we showed there. Isn't that wonderful? Even in His, his three and one, He felt He needed to overflow and create more. And He created mankind. And He invites mankind into this community. So after God created the heavens and the earth, day and night, sun and moon, stars, the seas, the plants, the animals, he created Adam, which means humanity. Of all the significant things God created, who are the only ones that bear his image? We are. Isn't that powerful? Out of everything, I mean, we can't even fathom to this day the wonderful splendor that is the universe. We, the, the NASA, they, who's seen the picture of the black hole, which is so blurry, and everyone's like, didn't they focus it, right? But to this day, they ha we haven't encompassed and we haven't traveled the universe. But that doesn't carry the image of God. We do. So maybe we have to seek within to find God. Amen? And seek Him out. Let's read it from Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27 to 28 from the Amplified. I read the Amplified because it unpacks it quite well. It, it calls it forth. It says, Then God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three, make man in our image according to our likeness, not physical, but a spiritual personality and moral likeness, 
So God created man in his own image. In the image and likeness of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, granting them certain authority and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subjugate it, putting it under your power and rule over. Christina Fox puts it this way. Human beings are unique. We are thinking and feeling beings. We have a free will, rational thought, and can logically think through our problems to find solutions. As image bearers, we have the dominion over the creative world. In this way, we represent God, demonstrating authority over plants and animals. Like God, we are also creative. Have you thought of that? God is creative and so are we. So if you, if you don't think you can draw or you're creative, you're wrong. Because in us is the capacity to create, express ourselves in all forms of art. And this is the key. Unlike the rest of creation, we are made to cons- commune with Him and have a relationship with our Heavenly Father because God is a triune God and a community in Himself. We also reflect God by being in community ourselves, by forming relationships with others and loving other people. And that's what I wanted to focus on. And this is what my core of my message is. We are created in and for community. We are not islands. You see, God could not help himself but create and create people like us in his image to have fellowship. That's the ultimate purpose of man is to enjoy him forever. Amen? But note, after Adam was created, after he created Adam, humanity, was the creation complete? He invited mankind into his community, but something wasn't yet done. What was that? Ladies, who was next? I was expecting more, right? (laughs) There was something very important missing, and that was women. Eve was not on the scene. And we know, after God proclaimed everything was good at every stage and every day, it was good, it was good, it was very good. One thing he said that was not good, and that was? For man to be alone. How we need women in our lives. Amen? It was not good. It's not beneficial. Genesis 2 verse 18 from the Amplified. Now, the Lord God said, It is not good, beneficial for man to be alone. I will make him a helper. I love this. One who balances him, a counterpart who is suitable and complementary for him. Any of you young people looking for someone to marry? Please, pick someone who is a counterpart who is suitable, who balances you out. It is so important. <laughs> you see from the message, Genesis 2 verse 18 says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper, and a better word I like, a companion. See, it was not good enough for God to just have fellowship with one human being, and for that one human being just to have fellowship with him. He wanted a community. A community with humanity, and a community in humanity. He wanted us humans to experience what he experienced in the Godhead. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that wonderful? Remember, he created us, male and female, in his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's image. When man and woman come together, we call it one flesh. We are truly representing the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit when we're in a marriage union because we are both in the image of God and we complement each other. Amen? Now, for a period of time... All was good. All was great. Humanity enjoyed God in the garden. They took probably cool walks with Him in the day. And they just had, had good, right relationship with God. 
Adam and Eve were in right relationship. And that's what righteousness means. If it's a word that confuses you, just know it means right relationship. When you and your fellow brother or sister are in right relationship, there's no baggage, there's no animosity, there's nothing between you. You're enjoying company with each other with nothing really muddying the surface. And Adam and Eve had that with God. They had right relationship with Him. Until what? Until us humans do what we always do. And what's the next steps in the Genesis story? We like to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. We want to judge and value the world and each other how we see it. Not trusting God and His Word and what He tells us. And you, you see, the story of the garden is not about what God told them to do and they didn't do what He said. It's a trust issue. They could eat of all the fruit in the Garden of Eden. They could do anything. God just said, do not eat of that one, because he knew they would die, and they did. You see, they didn't want to trust God. This is, unfortunately, the story of the human condition. We want to judge for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. We want to become selfish among a selfless God and take power and authority and be like him and judge for ourselves what is right and wrong. We seek independence and self-worth, and that's the issue. God never wanted us to have self-worth or independence. He wanted us to see the way He sees us and how He values and gives us worthy. Amen? But the serpent's word was successful in convincing Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. In Genesis 3 verse 5 from the Amplified, For God knows that one day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, that is, you will have a greater awareness and you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. You see, the issue wasn't necessarily just the fruit. It's the hot motive behind the fruit. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to say, I want to judge for myself what is right and wrong. I don't want God to tell me or to prescribe things for me. Sounds very much like a teenager. Maybe Adam and Eve were going through their teenage years, right? But they wanted to feel like, I know better I would like to know better. I want to be in that position where I can judge for myself. I don't need anybody else. Do you see the independence there? Do you see the pride? Do you see the selfishness? You see, we also see that it is definitely that issue because humanity and Eve judged that the fruit was good to eat. She saw it with her own eyes. Let's read from Genesis 3 verse 6, again from the Amplified. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to look at, and it is a tree to be desired in order to make one wise and insightful, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. You see, humanity wanted to judge for themselves. God said, it's not, please don't eat of that fruit. It will surely kill you. But they, they went right up close. They held it in their hands. They took it off, and they said, well, for me, I think it's good. What does God know? I can see from myself it looks good, it's got promises, it, will sh it doesn't really mean anything to me, that what God said, I think it's good. Can you see the whole issue of trust there? And that's what we do, we, we go on the appearance of things, we go on what feels good, what looks good, to ourselves individually, and that's when we disobey. And that is shame. They, as soon as they ate of that fruit, what entered into their hearts? 
they could tell the difference between right and wrong, unfortunately. And shame entered into their hearts. But for me, I think they must have, as soon as they did, they must have understood the gravity of the situation. They must have understood the shame in their disobedience. What did we do? You see, and that shame led to the withdrawal from God. And that was, I don't know if you're aware, but so often we think God is the one who kicks them out of the garden, teaches the serpent a lesson, teaches Adam an Eve a lesson, and kicks them out. But who is the first one that withdraws? Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the afternoon breeze of the day, like we said, probably was his custom with, with them to have a nice evening walk. So the man and his wife hid and kept themselves hidden from the presence of the Lord God. They, in their shame and disobedience, ran away. They wanted to hide. They no longer wanted to be in the presence of God because they knew what they've done. They themselves withdraw from the community because they, could no long, they knew they could no longer have fellowship with God because they were no longer like Him. That's the key. So there they hid naked, which they were always were, but now it was an issue, and ashamed. So after being found by God, we know that as a direct result from breaking relationship and community with God, what is the first symptom of, of this new broken community, this broken humanity? What is the first symptom that we see? What is the words that Adam and Eve speaks out when God says, what did you do? Why did you do it? I told you not to do it. What? Accusations. Judgment. Severe cracks start to appear between Adam and Eve's relationship that never were there. Right? The community starts to crack. Accusing and pointing fingers at each other. Shifting blame. Like so often us humans do. When humanity is no longer in harmony with God or each other, this is the direct result. We always like to blame and point fingers. We can just look at the world today and see how many divisions are rife in this world because Christ is not prevalent. Amen? You see, Adam and Eve's offspring continued that pattern, and we know it spirals down, and it continues throughout the Bible. And today we have war because the first war was fought between Cain and Abel. And we still have it today. Humanity divided because we, we rejected God and we, the direct result is we caused enmity with Him and within our community of humans. But guess what? Thank the Lord the story doesn't end. It's good news, amen? Like we said and like I started, Jesus was always there from the very beginning. God had already planned and He, he always pursues a reunited community with mankind. That's his heart. He has always made provision and he will always pursue us no matter what we do because his love is unconditional for us. Amen? Even though mankind rejected God, breaking relationship with him, from God's side, he still loved humanity and still pursues relationship with us even to this day. God's plan to restore relationship with mankind was already underway. From the moment they ate that apple, it was already underway. From their disobedience, God decrees redemptive work on the cross in his curse to the serpent. If you want to know where the first messianic prophecy in the Bible is, you don't have to turn too far. It's in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Amen? Are you guys familiar with, with what God said to the serpent? I'm going to read from the Amplified. I will put enmity 
open hostility between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman. And this doesn't just mean we don't like snakes. There's probably a byproduct why we don't like snakes. But the real reason is this. Between your seed, the snake, snake's offspring, and her seed, capital S, he shall fatally bruise your head and you shall only bruise his heel. That is a, that is a messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ. Because he is the capital S seed that will come from the woman of Eve and that he will kill and destroy the works of the enemy. And in the process of doing it, his heel, his flesh will be destroyed. But we know he is resurrected. The Amplified footnotes say it this way. This is the first announcement of the gospel. This is the first prophecy about the Messiah, Christ, who through his death on the cross and resurrection would ultimately defeat Satan, the power behind the serpent, with a death blow. You see, God made a way. Already. A way was already established. And we know God continues to make a way throughout the story of the Bible and throughout history. He enters into covenant with man. Are you guys familiar with, with covenant? I'm not going to unpack it too much, but honestly it's a subject you guys should study because we have forgotten what the word covenant really means today. It, it's not a contract. It's quite the antithesis of what a contract is. A covenant is a relational and personal lifetime partnership between two parties where they make binding promises to each other. They are committed to each other forever. Right? Contracts have stipulations and exit clauses. Decencies. God always intended for covenant to be permanent and long-lasting. But us in humanity, we always try to break it and, and move away. So throughout history, God enters into these series of covenants with humanity. First with Noah. He promises with the rainbow, the nice Sunday school story we tell our children. But that was a covenant. God said, I will no longer cause you harm. I will no longer bring destruction to this earth. Then, again with Abraham, we know he's the father of many nations. The seed through Abraham will be Israel. And then he makes a covenant with Israel, with Moses and the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. He says, you will be my God and I will be your people. Amen? And then with King David, promising that through his lineage, the true Savior, Jesus Christ, will be born. So throughout history, God entered into covenants with with Israel, like we know. But we know what Israel did. They did what Adam and Eve did from the very beginning. They walk away. They break covenant. But thank the Lord, He gives us one covenant that can never be broken. And that's in Jesus Christ and through shedding of His blood. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus is the culmination of all those covenants I've just read to you? He's a descendant of Abraham and Israel and in the line of David. That is why the Bible stresses so much of Jesus' lineage, because he's the complete fulfillment of all the covenants that came before. And that's why when we get to Jesus, we enter a new covenant, a new testament. Amen? Christ is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. I'm going to read another quote. It says, Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he created a redeemed community, brothers and sisters who are adopted into the family of God. Through faith in Christ's completed work for us, we are united to Him and to one another. You see, Jesus is the whole point. He's the focal point of the whole Bible. It's a unified story, the Bible project will tell you, that leads to Christ. That's the whole point of the Bible. We just read in Genesis chapter 3 that Jesus is, 
is shadowed, is mentioned, and it continues to the very end. Jesus is the point. He is the one human who lived and demonstrated community with God and with man. And that's what God desires us to be like, to be more like Christ, to have community with God and naturally with man. And that's what it's all about. It's about a new community in Christ. We have a new community in Christ. I'm going to focus on, on Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 21 and, and to 25. And this is where I started my... This was the first scripture that popped in my heart when I was preparing to share with you today. Because for me, it demonstrates this very point. From 19 to 21... It explains and tells us how God has brought us back into the community, how Jesus has brought us back into the community of God. How his redemptive work has been complete and humanity can once again be restored to with God. But it doesn't end there. Through to verse 25, he talks about the natural expression of this community with God is that it is a community outwards where we are today, sitting with each other side by side, face to face. So let's read it. Let's read it together. I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. So if you have digital Bibles, you're welcome to quickly change it. Hebrews 10, verse 19. And now we are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus. And he welcomes us to come right into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm, boldly, without, with no hesitation. For he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to Him. And since we now have a magnificent king priest to welcome us into God's house, we come closer to God and approach Him with an open heart, fully convinced by faith that nothing will keep us at a distance from Him. For our hearts have been sprinkled with the blood to remove impurity, and we have been freed from an accusing conscience. And now we are clean, unstained, and presentable to God inside and out. So if we pause there, isn't that a wonderful depiction of the redemptive work of Christ? Talks of how we get back into God's home, how we, mankind once again is reunited with his community. We are now back in community with God. But like I said, that's just half of the story. It's not even a second part. It's half of the whole story. Completeness is represented from verse 23 to 25. So now we must cling tightly to the hope that lives within us, knowing that God always keeps his promises. Discover creative ways to encourage others and motivate them towards acts of compassion, doing beautiful works as expressions of love. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together as some have formed the habit of doing because we need each other. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onwards as we anticipate that day drawing. Wow. If any of, if any of you get questioned, why do you go to church? This would be the verse to quote. Because it's not about a religious practice. It's not about a religious duty. It's about, number one, relationship with Him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and an expression of that relationship is sharing it outwards and coming together as a congregation. Amen? 
He says there, discover creative ways to encourage others and motivate them towards acts of compassion. And when you even, when you leave this place, always be looking for opportunities to encourage people, to have the compassion, just like Jesus. Every time we read, Jesus was moved with compassion to do works of miracle. He was moved with compassion. So the first thing we must realize is he loved the people. He loved them. From prostitutes to tax collectors, he loved everybody. He never discriminated. He never judged. And so shouldn't we. You see, I believe in this day and age there's no better time to be a believer because this world is drawing more isolated, more separate, and more disconnected than it ever has been. They are pulling away and neglecting each other, and they don't even meet together. You know, a lot of people find ways that I don't need to meet with you. I can just phone you. I can have a call. But there's something special when two humans come together and connect. When you're in someone's presence, just like God walked with Adam and Eve in the presence of God. Who of you know what the six degrees of separation is? Six degrees of separation is the idea that all people are six or fewer social connections from each other. In other words, I can point any one of you out in this crowd, and within six people, I would have identified how I relate to you. Okay, even this would be because I relate to you through church. So we would have to walk across the road, find a stranger, and there would be six connections that we would be able to, not bloodline, but how I got to know you. As a result of chain friend of a friend statements can be made to connect any two people in a maximum of six steps. You guys get it, right? Now, that was a long time ago when they agreed it was six people. Do you know today it's no longer six? Our collective degrees of separation have shrunk over the past five years through studies. A university study, which involved one of my least favorite platforms, Facebook, um, they said through the means of Facebook, through this means of connectedness, I put it in flying quotation marks, they, they were saying that it's no longer six. Because we are even more connected than we have ever have been throughout history, through technology, we are now even closer to finding a some reason why we are connected. And the degrees they settle on now is 3.57. There are 3.57 degrees of separation. Now the reason I'm highlighting to, this to you is that it's a great paradox, isn't it? They say we are closer together, but we are nev have never been further apart. Technology has brought us, has given us means or methods to connect and be connected. But like I said, we, we reject the face-to-face -face communication of that connectedness. So humanity today, in my opinion, has never been more separated and isolated. Never. I mean, all of you with biological families, those of you who existed through, let's say, from the 1980s or the 90s, before cell phones, for example, were in existence, when it was someone's birthday, what did you do? If they lived in your city, what did you do if it was someone's birthday? You phoned them, but you would go around for tea, right? Before phones, you would go around for tea. You would, you know, just sit there and have a good time. Now, we fast forward to our generation, where we don't even phone them. <laughs> now, we're all guilty, <laughs> right? We, get a, we don't even remember their birthdays because Facebook ha reminds us that it's their birthdays or our calendars or our phones, <laughs> right? The point is, technology isn't the problem. It's just facilitated a problem that shouldn't have existed in the first place. 
we've become less connected in through these means of connection. But there's one reason for that. There's one person for that. Christ is not involved as much as he should be. We've just read in the whole passage of Hebrews is he's the reason why he brought us to God and how he brought us together with humanity. He is missing in this world today. And I believe the world knows it, they just don't want to point it out. Christ brings life and intimacy to our relationship with God and he brings life and intimacy into our relationships with each other. He does both. If we let him. When I was preparing for this, another famous scripture or verses that Jesus speaks came to my mind. John 15, 5. The vine, right? I am the sprouting vine and you are my branches. As you live in the union with me as your source, fruitfulness will stream from within you, but when you live separated from me, you are powerless. Now for me, I've so, many, I've so often read that and taken it as a direct result of my relationship with God. Amen? I need to abide in God and He in me in order to have fruitfulness and to flow out. But There's one word that slapped me in the face this week in that passage, and it is, you are my branches. Is that singular or plural? Plural. He's not talking to the isolated believer. He's talking to a community of believers here. Amen? He's talking to the community of the church, his connected body. We are connected in him. We're not just mere individuals. You see, the whole point is you can't have an isolated Christian walk. As much as this Western world will tell you, it doesn't work. It can't just be me and God and my Bible. Because if you do read the Bible and you study it hard enough, you're going to have compassion for others, and before you know it, you're going to connect. If you're really reading it with your heart attitude. Amen? It's, it's like a picture Jesus on this earth today. Would he be in isolated and closed up and separate from the world right now? No. We would probably be appalled where he would be. You went, where, Jesus? Right? But he never remained isolated. He called 12 relationships of men, and even in the 12 relationships of men, he went out and he connected to people and he sat with people and he met with people. And always the down and outs. When Siobhan and I go ministering with Craig once a month on evangelism, the thing that really impacted me this week is that when you go visit the down and outs, they have dropped their judgment. When they're really down and out, they have no judgment. They know why they are there, and they know it's their responsibility. And that really, really resonated with me, and that's why Jesus went to those people, because they were accepting that it was their fault that they took of the fruit of disobedience. And I think that's what Jesus goes to people's hearts that are ready. The rich young ruler wasn't ready. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't ready. They were so content of judging what is right and holy for them. Amen? You see, if we are connected to Christ, we cannot live. If we are not connected to Christ, we cannot live as branches. If you're not connected to the vine, you're not a branch, you're not a grape, you're not connected. But if you are connected, you're connected with your brother and your sister, and you're connected as branches within one life source of the vine. You see, when Jesus was questioned, what is the most important commandment? In various means or ways throughout the New Testament, he gets asked that question. What does he answer? He answers one commandment with two halves. 
The Shema prayer. Love the Lord your God with all your passion, your prayer, and intelligence. This is most important and first on any list, Jesus says. But there's a second half alongside it that forms the whole. Love others as well as you love yourself. These two commands, as one, everything in God's law and the prophets hangs from them. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus summed it up. Love God and love people. You see, you can't love God if you don't love people and you can't love people if you don't love God. It's not possible. Not the true love, agape love, that the Bible speaks of. A love that is in a doing word. It's an action. It's not a feeling. This world has lost its meaning for love. It's not something you fall in and out of. It's not a feeling in your, in your emotions. It's a choice. It's the seeking of the well-being of someone else above your own. It's selfless. Amen? You see, the feeling of love, if it's emotional, it's selfish. I like you to be close to me because you make me feel like this. But true agape love, the love that Jesus demonstrated when he walked on this earth, was always, it always looks like something and it's always doing something. It's always active. Amen? We actively demonstrate love. And that's what he's called us to. He demonstrated, before he says, love one another as I have loved you, he washed their feet. He gave them a demonstration of what it means to love someone. I'm going to read from 1 John verse 4. I'm going to read from verse 11. Delightfully loved ones, if he loved us with such tremendous love, then loving one another should be our way of life. He calls it out. He says it plain. He says, Then delightfully loved ones, if He loved us with such tremendous love, and we know He did, then loving one another should be our way of life. No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor. But if we love one another, God makes His permanent home in us, and we make our permanent home in Him, and His love is brought to its full expression in us. Wow. But if we love one another... That's when God comes to live within us and us in Him. That's when we become the vine. Is that we're not only seeking a, a solitary connection, but we're seeking a connection with all of God's creation. I'm going to read a quote here from the Bible Project. It says, Christian purpose is to receive this love that has to come to us from Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of other-focused, self-giving love. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about receiving the love of God and giving it out. And we give it out in an others-focused way. Not about me, but about your love, Lord. How can I pour it out? You see, this community that I'm talking to you about is not a passive community. And I think, I think the church knows these truths. What I should be sharing with you today shouldn't be revelation. It shouldn't be something that we don't know. We all know this, and we all walk in a measure of it. Amen? That's why we're here. We love each other. But you see, I think God is asking us to stir up our activity. This world will always speak passivity. It wants you to watch a movie without leaving your home. Right? Jesus wants us to go live that movie with someone else. It's an action. He wants us to be doing something. You see, if you're feeling lonely, the Bible doesn't 
tell you to wallow in your loneliness? What does it tell you to do? It says, go be a friend to someone else. Be the change. Gandhi didn't say it. The Bible said it first. Be the change you want to see. Because that's what Christ did. He didn't wait for humanity to draw close to him in order for him to do something. He came down first and died for us. And he tells us to do the same. In closing, I'm going to read you the following quote, again from Christina Fox. It says this, Christ calls us to love others as he has loved us. When we look at Jesus' own relationship here on earth, we see that he was despised and rejected. His closest friends ran away when he needed them the most. He loved them, forgave them, and died for them. He calls us to do the same in our relationships. We are to pursue unity with one another in church, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, just as Christ has done for us. You see, Christ doesn't deny that people will, will hurt us and leave us, but he doesn't want us to, to stay in that broken state. He wants us to be the Christ in that relationship. He did not give up on us, neither should we give up on the church. That is my hope for closer, for the book that she titles, Closer Than a Sister, that when we would pursue deeper and richer spiritual connections with others in the body of Christ, no matter how hard it is, no matter what it takes. And I just love, love the way she put it. You see, Jesus didn't demonstrate it just for an action to complete a financial transaction. We were in debt and now Jesus saved us, we're no longer in debt. No, that's, that's only a, a slight part of it. He demonstrated what the new humanity should look like, how connected and how community should really look like how we as believers should reach out to each other first and then the world outside. Amen? Isn't that a powerful way of, of seeing the redemptive work of the cross, of a joining of hands, of the community of God and people and each other? So in our closing of, our, of the message today, it just happens it was communion. and always happens that it goes so well with community. Mishka, could you call Siobhan and, and the young men and women? So... As we close out today, I'm going to ask the worship team to, to lead us into a song. And we're going to distribute the emblems of the bread and the wine. And when we do this, it, it should be a natural thing to think back. Because Jesus says, whenever you do this, remember. Do this in remembrance of me. And I want you to also remember the occasion that he did it. That he sat with his disciples and he had a meal together before he was about to die. And he, he took time to express what these symbols mean. And the fellowship of the symbols and the encouragement of whenever you come together, do this. It's in your coming together that you remember my, my death and resurrection. Also, I was reminded this week of when the dis disciples were on the road of Emmaus, when they were disappointed and disillusioned when Jesus died and they thought all hope was lost. This Messiah that came has died at the hands of, of the Romans and the, and the Pharisees. And I guess who appears right next to them without them knowing. Jesus, amen? And then they didn't know, and you have, they have a good, have a good discussion on, on whatever it was, and, on scriptures and references. But it's what moment did they recognize and their eyes were opened that Jesus was with them? It's when he sat with them, when he had a meal with them, and when he broke that bread with them. Can you imagine? They were like, that feeling that we felt before when Jesus was with us is now here again. Because he was a stranger. He was unrecognizable to them. It wasn't like their eyes weren't sharp and they didn't have 20-20 vision. They were fine. Jesus purposely came in a, in, a, 
in a vessel that was unfamiliar to them. At the moment when he sat and broke bread, it's like a veil dropped. It's in the community of Christ that we come and we know each other and know Christ better. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.